I don't think I've had so many people ask me questions about uh, politics in the last few months as I've had in years and years and years and years and years. Uh, So this is our question. What's our role as followers of Jesus in the political mess in which we find ourselves? The Confederate flag, gun ownership, same-sex marriage, immigration, on and on and on. Today, I want to introduce some fundamental biblical principles for uh, political involvement. What does that look like? You know, what does it look like for followers of Jesus? Do we have any other way of engaging in politics other than sort of all the craziness we see around us? I want to argue today that we do have another way of engaging in politics. Now, uh, this isn't what we're talking about today our first principles, so it's not going to answer every particular question you have about politics. I mean, politics is a huge, huge subject. Uh, so what I want to do is I want to take one verse that I think picks up uh, three themes in particular that are really helpful in terms of introducing basic principles. So uh, you're not going to have to read, you're not going to have to pick up a Bible. I'm going to have it all up on the screen here for you today. But we're calling this God and Politics 101. So in Philippians 3.20, here's what Paul wrote to some Christians in, in the ancient world. He said, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So there, there's, this passage is just full of politics, believe it or not. You may read this and think, oh my gosh, this is... It's talking about heaven, you know, it doesn't have anything to do with politics. The word citizenship and the word savior and and heaven in this context, those are very political terms in the first century. The savior, when Paul wrote this, was Caesar. That was his title. He was the savior. The Lord Jesus Christ was a very political title in that time, amongst other things. It wasn't just political, clearly. But when Paul used this term in that context, he was saying something that made people sit up and listen. Like, what? That's political talk. So followers of Jesus, what this passage tells us is followers of Jesus possess dual citizenship. Now, uh, one of my friends, Melvinata, she's from Germany, and she uh, has a German citizenship, and she has uh, like a permanent residence status here because she's been married to Rick for, uh, I don't know, 17 years now. But there are lots of folks who have actually have dual citizenships. There, there are uh, countries that allow you to do that. And what Paul's saying here is, he says there's three things in this passage. We're only going to look at one of them today. We'll look at the other two next week. He says... Followers of Jesus possess dual citizenship. We're not just American citizens. We're also citizens of the kingdom, of another kingdom. It also says that followers of Jesus live by these countercultural values of Jesus. When he says heaven, he's talking about there's a kingdom that Jesus brought into the world, that's breaking into this world, that has a, a really different value system than this world has. And third... Followers of Jesus hold on to a unique hope. We don't put our hope in the political process. 
That's what, in the first century they did, that's what a lot of folks do today. They think, oh my gosh, everything's riding on who wins this election. That's what you would think by the way that people talk. And it's not that nothing's riding on it, but the kingdom of God's breaking into the world, and it's changing the world we live in, and it's, in, it's inevitable, the changes that it's going to bring, but we have to understand that as part of how we engage with politics. So let's look at this first point. We have a dual citizenship. So Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians, and in this letter, he was writing to a church that was in a leading colony of Rome. It's the city called Philippi. And they were Roman citizens, the city of Philippi. They're living there, if they were born there, and they had, they had these rights as Roman citizens that gave them a real privileged status. People who didn't have, uh, for example, in Rome, if you, were arrest, if you were charged with a crime, they couldn't put you in jail until they they taken you before a judge. We can be put in jail now without being taken before a judge. You understand that they had that's a pretty high bar in any in any country. But in Rome, they even had more liberal views of uh, crime and criminal charges, etc., than we do today. But if you're a Roman, if you weren't a Roman citizen, they could pretty much do whatever they wanted. So to be a Roman citizen was a pretty big deal. Uh, they were proud, too, of their Roman heritage, of their Roman citizenship, and they were very loyal. This colony was made up of a lot of ex-soldiers. They were pretty well paid. They were important. They had status. And so Paul is writing to them, people who really, really identified as Roman citizens, and he's, he's saying, when you became followers of Jesus, something happened to you that you have to begin to factor into how you relate to your community and to the world. So let's look at that for a second. Our faith in Jesus gives us a citizenship in heaven, in, this, in the kingdom of God that's breaking in. And so the, the, the word heaven in Greek comes from a, a, a root word that means to cover. And so Rome was famous for you know, sort of its influence covering the earth. And so there's this, there's this clear inference that Paul's making. Whatever you think about Rome, you know, uh, the, the, Rome is everywhere. The kingdom of God, this kingdom of heaven is above that. It covers it. There's this little passage just is brimming with pretty radical ideas for someone who was hearing this in the first century as a Roman citizen, especially in Philippi. And so what Paul said in one of his other letters is he said this. He said, he, God, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. So he's saying when you, when you become a follower of Jesus, you're not primarily a citizen of whatever country you live in or whatever empire you live under, you know, whatever, whatever identified, whatever your citizenship was before, because in the first century they had city-states. And so you could be a citizen of a, of a community. What he's saying is that all changes when, when Jesus purchases you with his blood. 
And in another letter Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, he said to all these Corinthian believers, he said, you have been bought with a price. In other words, you've been redeemed, which was a, a, a marketplace term, for when you bought a slave, you paid a price to, to free that slave from its owner, and you became the owner. But the New Testament was saying over and over, you are freed from slavery. You're transferred from slavery to freedom, that God gives you freedom, which was what all slaves longed for. They longed for the kind of freedom that, that their owners had. And Paul was saying, that's what Jesus did when he gave his life for us, that he broke the power of sin and all the other things that enslave us, and we came under his loving kingdom. So this, this heavenly citizenship means that our ultimate loyalty is to the Lord Jesus Christ. That was part of that one text. They used to swear and, and uh, solemnly declare oath to Caesar. Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord was a basic loyalty oath of the Roman Empire. The first creed of the early church was Jesus is Lord. Now, does that sound... That might sound that radical to us today, but back then, Jesus was killed. He was crucified because the Romans accused him of sedition, rebellion. If you read the Gospels, the Jews brought him to the Romans and said, he is declaring himself to be a king, which is challenging Caesar. And remember what they put above, we don't have it here, but above the cross, whenever someone was crucified, there'd be the, a, a, a little sign that had the, the declaration of the charges against the crucified criminal. Above Jesus, it just said, Jesus Christ, the King of the Jews. So his charge was, and it was a mockery, yeah, you're a king, you're a crucified king. They were mocking Jesus. But that's what he was crucified for because he claimed to be Lord. His, his followers saw him as Lord. Now we know he rose from the dead, he ascended to heaven, which demonstrated he was Lord. That he's ruling over the empire. He ruled over that empire. And the church, in a sense, conquered the Roman Empire through love and through the, the proclamation of the gospel, the good news about Jesus and what he did. And so Caesar's not Lord, Jesus is. Now that was the radical idea for them. It's a radical idea to, for us today to realize this is not our homeland. We're citizens of the United States, but we're also citizens of another kingdom. This kingdom is going to pass away. Do you understand that? It's going to pass away. That's what the Bible says. All the kingdoms of the earth. And, and our country is a wonderful country. I think it's the best place in the world to live. I know people, I have friends who live in Switzerland, have friends who live in other countries who really love their countries. I haven't lived in many places, but I would say I, I prefer our country to other places. But this country has tremendous flaws, tremendous problems with injustice and evil and darkness and stuff beyond sometimes what we can see. There, this country, like all kingdoms, are going to pass away. Rome was considered to be a great kingdom. The British Empire is a great kingdom. I mean, there's just been kingdom after kingdom after kingdom. 
Paul's saying, listen, you guys that think Rome is the top of the heap, it's not. It is going to be part of the heap. And we have to grasp that. So here's what Jesus said about this loyalty thing. He said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate in comparison to his love for me, his father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even their own life, and their loyalty to work, their loyalty to country, their loyalty to friendships. Jesus has to be Lord. He's called to be Lord of everything. And such a person who won't make me Lord can't be my disciple. And, and he's talking, they're talking many times in these citizenship terms. Citizenship is something that's conferred on you. Now, unless you're born, like Paul was born a Roman citizen. But a lot of people had to purchase their citizenship. But even if you offered a lot of money, it didn't mean you could necessarily become a citizen. Someone who had the authority had to give you the permission. And there was a very stark line between outside and inside. You either were a citizen or you weren't a citizen. And it's something someone has to give you. and something has to happen to you. Well, that's the way the kingdom works. But part of God giving us his grace is he says, you've got to lay down your, your rebellion against me. That's what repentance is. And then faith is receiving the gift of what Jesus did for us on the cross that transfers us into the kingdom of light. And so Jesus said there's terms for citizenship. Faith in me is at the heart of it. And so when everybody has faith in him, if you're a believer in Jesus here, you're part of that citizen. I mean, you're part of that, you're, you have that citizenship, excuse me. So our dual citizenship requires submission, believe it or not. Not ultimate submission, but it requires citizenship submission to human authority, to Caesar. So Jesus is our ultimate authority, but because we're dual citizens, we also have to submit to human authority. Now, you know, you may go, well, that sounds like a contradiction. No, it isn't. I want to read a passage to you in Romans 13, 1 to 7. We'll start in verse 1. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Now, when Paul wrote this, if we're going to the next verse, Nero was the, was the emperor of Rome. And Nero was a madman, and he hated Christians. And Paul said Nero was put in place by God. Now, he's going to be held accountable for what he did with the authority he was given, but he was put in place by God. So President Obama was ultimately put in place by God, whether we voted or not. God was the one that established him as the president of the United States, and President Bush before him, and President Clinton before him. Now, that may boggle our minds, like, oh my gosh, because maybe you have some, you know, uh, political objections to different people who've been president. Well, I think Paul probably had a lot of political objections to Nero. A lot of people did. A lot of people lost their lives because of Nero. But Paul said, fundamentally, God is in charge. He is in charge. So he says in the next verse, Consequently, whoever rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. 
For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then do what's right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They, now listen to this, they are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it's necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Then he sums it up. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. So let me summarize. What he just said in those seven verses, there's a lot there. He said, we are to submit to the state because it's a divine institution with divine authority. Second, he says, those in authority are God's servants. And that word there is the same word that used to describe leaders in churches. It's used to describe Jesus himself. Jesus was one of God's servants. So he's saying that people in government actually have authority from God. He's delegated it to them. They're his servants. Whether they know it or not, whether they act like it or not, and they will be held accountable for that. To rebel against governmental authority is to rebel against God. Now, another point in this, we're, we have dual citizenship. Our dual citizenship requires, requires political engagement. It requires political engagement. So we see we are, we, our citizenship is in heaven. We can see that we're supposed to submit to leaders we're supposed to engage in the political process in a meaningful way. Jesus said, you, if you're his follower, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All these, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So, Jesus demanded that we love our neighbors. He said, you can't please God if you don't love your neighbor. And, you're, and love is a very active thing. It's not just emotive feelings. It is about your deeds and your actions. So we have a dual citizenship. Now, I'm gonna, I'll give you a list of things that, that if you're going to engage in the political process, these, are, these nine things are the least of your duties. This is, the, this is the minimum. Number one, obey the law. Number two, vote. Number three, pay taxes. You shouldn't pay more taxes than you have to, but you shouldn't be cheating the government. If you're a Christian and you're not paying the taxes you should be paying, you're rebelling against God. And you may feel like, but I pay too many taxes. Okay, 
Number four, pray for your leaders. Be informed on political issues. Advocate justice for all. Respectfully criticize our government. Protest unjust laws and even resist unjust laws. If your citizenship in heaven, let me go back over those again. You're supposed to obey the law because God is instituted government. Number two, you're supposed to vote because you have a privilege of having a voice in our government. Paul, when he wrote those words, Romans 13, 1 to 7, they didn't have any voice in their government. People ruled them. Three, pay taxes. Pray for our leaders. Be informed on political issues. Those of you that that are disengaged from the political process and you don't like to think about these things, it's part of your responsibility. You're supposed to be involved in this. if, If you've noticed in our country, every election, a smaller proportion of the people eligible to vote in our country vote every election. It just drops. Every national, all the big elections, less and less people are determining what happens in our country. Christians should not be part of that. I get it. I understand. The political system is crazy. But it's not going to get better if we just withdraw from it. And Paul says there is no option for the believer in Jesus. You cannot be uninvolved in the political process. Now, you may feel like I need to take a bath after I watch the news or I I read a political website. So be it. Do you think in the first century the Christians would have begged to be able to have the voice that we have? Yes, they would have done anything to switch places with us. We need to advocate for justice for everybody, meaning God wants us to care about everybody. Now, next week we're going to get into kingdom values where we talk about respect and courage and justice and uh, humility and compassion. Well, these qualities are uniquely Christian qualities. They're not just virtues that only Christians demonstrate because there's courageous people who don't believe in God. We have principles that Jesus laid out, that that, that the Old and New Testament laid out, that we're supposed to advocate for. We're supposed to stand up for people, like we've heard about all our lives, who powerful people are not treating well. And that's one of the things that's most disheartening about our country, is just how people who have power are stepping on the people who don't have power. And I think that fits whatever political category you see yourself in. And, it, and, and both sides have valid uh, issues with the other side in that respect. Republicans think the Democrats have problems with this, and, and Democrats think Republicans do, and they're both right. But who is, who is going to stand up and advocate honestly even sometimes against our own interest. I don't think it's ultimately against our own interest to advocate for, the, for people who are weak and have no voice. But Christians are supposed to do that because Jesus did it for us. Right? Don't we always come back to that? It's all about, all of our ethics are based on what Jesus did for us. And when you have people tell you, you Christians, 
we like your morality, a lot of your morality and your ethics, but we don't like the gospel doctrinal part of it. We just want you to be into this, into doing the good stuff because we like, we like it. We like some of your stuff. Love your enemies, love your neighbors, you know, help the poor, all that's good stuff. But the truth is, we don't do that because we've just chosen any, mini mighty mode. Let's help the poor. No, any, mini mighty mode. Let's just help the powerful. It doesn't work that way. There is a there's a moral fabric to the universe. Jesus revealed it, lived it. We're supposed to embrace it. And when people tell you they don't want the Judeo-Christian message, they just want the Judeo-Christian care for the poor and all that, you can't separate those two. You can't. Because if you take it out of there, then it's just personal choice, and it's any, meeny, miny, mo. And if someone tells you, I think you should care for the poor, well, you show me. Show me the truth of that from a test tube. Prove that to me scientifically that we should care for the poor. You can't. It's just a preference. Why that preference above this other preference? Well, we believe it's because Jesus taught us that. We believe there's a reason to believe that the ethic he taught is the best one. It's based on his life. He died and rose again from the dead. We have, we have a, a reason to believe that there's a value system that's the best value system to embrace. Now, in a pluralistic culture, we're going to have to argue that out. But I've learned people who argue against me and my beliefs are arguing from a point of faith just like I am. And Christians back off and are afraid to speak up and say, we should be doing this because we believe this. That's all the other people are doing, but they have even less of a basis to argue for their position from. And we can be loving and respectful about that, but we've got to point it out and say, you argue from a place of faith just like you do, even if you don't believe in God. You're, the fact that you say you don't believe in God, prove that to me. Prove there's no God. So you're just asserting arguments from a place of faith just like me. And I think mine, in the long run, have proven to be a lot better for human flourishing than the ethics that have been birthed out of atheistic systems. And that, you know, we've talked about that before, so I won't go there. But we're supposed to respectfully criticize our government. Do you understand that? We're supposed to criticize our government. Jesus criticized his government respectfully. Now, you may say... He called some of them whitewashed tombs. Hmm. <laughs> That's interesting. You know, Jesus' language sometimes was almost like Donald Trump's language. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he, you know, uh, we look at some of the straight talk we hear in some political circles, and sometimes we, and I'm not, I'm not saying that's, you know, I'm not endorsing Donald Trump, don't hear that. Not saying that that's, that's necessarily the way we should talk, but Jesus is pretty straightforward. If you read the Gospels, he, he told some of the, the Pharisees that essentially they were trained in the bag of snakes seminary, right? You brood of vipers. I mean, he called them some pretty strong names. He was describing their behavior. But being respectful is an attitude towards not always the way that those in government are behaving, but the office that they occupy. 
and we'll talk about this next week, and them as human beings. And Jesus always respected everybody he met. But he also was able to call people on the carpet. We need to be able to do the same thing. We need to be able to criticize our government, but with respect so that we aren't just seen as flamethrowers, right? We've got to be able to be bold enough to say things that need to be said. And then we have to protest unjust laws and sometimes resist them. And I have plenty of friends who have been put in jail for civil disobedience uh, about issues that they felt strongly about. And I think that that's a, that's a, uh, a noble heritage that the Christian church has practiced. For, for generations, Christians have stood up and said, we will not allow this to go on without raising a stink about it. So, living out our dual citizenship, this, we'll, we'll pull a conclusion here. Living out our dual citizenship will always be costly. There's no way to be faithful to Jesus and find a way to, to try to submit to human authority and live in the tension of that without it costing us. Remember, remember that. Jesus modeled it for us. He lived it out perfectly. He submitted to his Father, and he, and he lived in submission properly to human authorities. But he said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. Even though they couldn't condemn me of any sinful behavior. If you do the right thing, you're going to find yourself in trouble with people who are in authority. It's a commonplace experience. See, the Bible is consistently suspicious. Now, you heard me say all these positive things about human government. Let me, let me give you a sense of balance in this. The Bible, if you read it from Genesis to Revelation, seriously, you can throw out a, a governmental mention from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is consistently suspicious of Caesar, a.k.a. human governments, because they so frequently misuse their God-given authority. In fact, there are only a couple of positive examples of human rulers throughout the whole Bible. And it's not that there aren't people who have been fairly faithful human rulers, but the, the, the trend is that human government always tends to try to play God and always tries to acquire more power because human beings are intoxicated with power. I, I don't know who, who stated the, you know, coined the famous phrase, Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But power corrupts. Because Does anybody not believe that in this room? It does. And so if we're going to be faithful to Jesus and we're going to be faithful to, to try to submit to human government, we're going to run headlong into all kinds of uh, dilemmas. Because human government is going to misbehave on a regular basis. Every level of human government. I mean... We've gotten so used to certain uh, freedoms that we have here that we don't know what it's like to live under the kind of tyrannies that, that people li normally live with in other countries. I mean, most countries, to get anything done business-wise, you have to bribe people. 
because they have power to give you permission to do something or to forbid you from doing something, and you have to pay for it. Now, we're not generally at that point here, but that does happen. And that's just one example. There's one of my friends, I'll give you an example. Uh, I'm trying to go into too much of a rabbit trail. I didn't plan to say this, but one of my friends is an attorney, and uh, he is a uh, AA sponsor also. And so he is a young guy who called him one day and said, I need you to represent me because I got in trouble. And he uh, got into this little traffic fracas. And it was one of those road rage kind of incidents. And so this guy was chasing him. He did something that made a guy angry. The guy's chasing him around. He's call, he calls 911 and says, please come and rescue me. And I'm at this street and I'm going this direction. So police cars pull up. And so he gets, anyway, he gets a ticket for, you know, a certain level of misdemeanor traffic violation. And, but he has a record because he's, you know, he, he, he used to be a, a drug and alcohol abuser. He lived a pretty wild life, and he hasn't lived a perfect life since then. And so when the prosecutor got a hold of this misdemeanor, he decided that he could charge this young guy with a higher, uh, he could re- elevate his charge. And so when that happened, he calls my friend and says, could you please represent me? And the bottom line was, of this is, my friend said his young friend who got in trouble was willing, he know, I did this, I need to pay, I did the crime, I need to do the time, so to speak. And he wasn't going to go to jail, he was just going to pay, you know, a pretty stiff uh, penalty, financial uh, penalty, but this, there was, there was, I'm sorry, there's two charges in it, and one of them he was willing to pay, the other one he wasn't. Well, he wouldn't plead guilty to the other one, and so the prosecutor said, I'm going to charge you with a lot more, not because it's right, but because I can, and I was talking to my friend. I said, you know, I'm kind of sympathetic to prosecutors, and, uh, you know, it's just kind of the way I lean, and he goes, he goes, John, and he explained the ins and outs, the legal ins and outs. He said, the police officers didn't investigate this second charge because they knew it wasn't true. The prosecutor came along and tossed it in, and, and he's trumping this up, and it's going to cost him money. They're doing this for all these reasons that aren't valid. And so my friend said, I don't usually... He said, I don't like to, to work with these cases. It's a pro bono case because this guy's a friend of mine. He didn't have any money. But he said, this is the kind of thing where attorneys need to stand up against the system. And he said, if you're into, you know, leaning towards the prosecutors, this is not a place you should lean towards them. And I listened to him. I thought, that's true. And that, but that kind of stuff, my friend says, that happens every day. Every day. It's a commonplace tactic. And so here's this balance. You see, here's the balance that we face that's that's very difficult to realize. But if we don't have voices in the community that say that kind of thing is wrong, we don't have people that have some principle who work in law, and, and Christians who vote for prosecutors who operate a certain way, not just do they have 100% prosecution success rate. That can't be the only valid way 
that we evaluate someone who's in that kind of a position. That's just one example. So there's tensions of, that, that our dual citizenship create with, with unjust government. There's five of them in the Bible. I'm just going to tick them off real fast. Back in the Exodus, Pharaoh said he was threatened by all the Jewish people, and so he started saying to the, the midwives, we want you to drown all the boys because that will you know, cut the population significantly. And the midwives wouldn't do it. They challenged, they resisted unjust government. It says, that, and if you read Exodus 1, it says that God blessed them. In uh, the king of Babylon commanded the Hebrews who were in exile to worship and pray to this huge idol. And Daniel said no. I'm sorry, the, the, these other young guys said no, we're not going to do it. And they were thrown into a fiery furnace. There's this picture of injustice, government. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was a guy, if you read the book of Daniel, it said that God loved him. God had this tender heart towards Nebuchadnezzar. Remember a while back when we studied the book of Daniel? But here's this guy that power got to him. Uh, there was a, then just a couple of chapters later, the, that same king commanded the Hebrews not to pray to any god but him. And Daniel heard the news. He went right home, opened his windows, and prayed towards Jerusalem. He got in trouble for it. He got thrown into the lion's den. So I guess they got rid of the fiery furnace. They started using lions. You're going to get in hot water when you refuse to go along with Caesar. If you think Caesar is Lord and not Jesus, you're going to have tension in the political process. This is part of, of our legacy. The religious leaders in Jerusalem in the first century told the apostles, don't preach in the name of Jesus. Right after Peter and John healed a man at the gate and all the people, uh, they started preaching in the temple and 3,000 people were converted. They got arrested. They got hauled into a religious court and the people said, I mean, the religious leaders said, you can't do this. But they couldn't find any fault in what they did. They just said, we're threatening you. It's going to be bad for you. This is like Donald Trump. It's going to be really bad. Really bad. Really bad stuff. They kept preaching. Next thing, they get whipped by those religious leaders. They brought them in. And it says that they rejoiced that they were worthy to suffer for Jesus' name. This whole thing about following Jesus is going to cost us something. See, they had this attitude that I do need to submit to human government, but it isn't infallible. Human government is not perfect. Jesus' government is perfect. I'm going to live for that. And there's going to be times where there's a collision between what they require of me, and so I'm going to go with Jesus. And it may cost me something. It may cost all of us here something at some point. Some of us have already experienced that because we've decided, I'm going to live for Jesus. I'm going to run my business for Jesus. I'm going to relate to people for Jesus. I'm going to relate to my family the Jesus way, etc. I'm going to be a citizen the Jesus way. And you find people just not appreciating that. But when we're talking about politics 101, we have to understand this is what we're called to. And it doesn't mean we have to be really an, an unpleasant person with respect to vocal, how we vocalize our political convictions. Do you understand? Don't, don't think those two things together. Like, like people who are Jehovah's Witnesses 
if you ever had one of those guys knock on your door, they're taught that the fact that so many people are rude to them is a sign that they got the right idea. All right? So when you find that you're acting like a butthead politically and people don't like it, don't take that as encouragement that you're doing the right thing. It might be true, but just as likely you're just a butthead. <laughs> and, I mean, all of us struggle with that. But when we talk about politics, we don't have to be that way. We can be persuasive and not just abrasive. Do you understand the difference? It has to do with attitude and tone. And, as we'll talk about next week, it has to do with whether or not you really respect everybody that you engage. So many people in our culture today do not respect people. You can see it in the way, the attitude, this this dismissive attitude. You're on the other side of the issue, so you're a jerk. You're an enemy of the state. You're an enemy of God. Every issue is, I've had people treat me that way, and I go, everybody likes me. (laughs) How can I be an, an enemy of God? They, because people, they, they've, they've lost the idea that we're supposed to respect everybody, even if we disagree with them. Jesus taught us to love our enemies. He taught us to love people even that want to kill us, to pray for them. Now, we don't have to approve of everything that they do, but we have to respect them, that they're made the image of God, that God loves them, And I'm supposed to convey that to them, too. Because that's part of the hope. That's part of the hope that the gospel will get through them if they see that in in us. So, last point. Our dual citizenship calls for principled, costly, political engagement from every follower of Jesus. Each of us here. Every one of us. Now, some of us are going to be a little more engaged than others. But if you go back over those nine points, you don't have to listen to this because I didn't give you an outline this time. But voting, paying taxes, being informed, protesting, resisting. Some people are called to serve in the political process. I didn't put that on there. But every one of us are supposed to engage in a principled way in the political process. Secondly, our dual citizenship gives us a, a positive but realistic view of human government. Human government is not the enemy. Just unjust human government is bad. And it's something that we're supposed to to challenge and to work to change. And then our dual citizenship endorses 